Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 45 and it's 1980. Everything will accelerate from now on as wars generally do when neither side has complete control over the battlefield. And one of the biggest events of the border war was about to take place, Operation Skeptic or Smokeshell, as most call it. Swapo by now had pulled back from the shallow areas, those parts of southern Angola closest to the cutline, the border with southwest Africa. They moved deeper into Angola northwards, which meant that any future operation would have further to go. The pattern of rainy season cross-border incursions was now underway as Swapo's armed wing plan used the thicker vegetation and numerous waterholes, not to mention the increased problems for the SA Air Force with thunderstorms and more weather around making air support problematic. It was also more difficult to locate bases inside Angola. The SADF began focusing its powerful conventional cross-border operations during winter when it was dry. Remember, Southern Africa is a summer rainfall area for my global audience. The dry winters made it easier for heavy vehicles to travel about, and during the winter, plan would gather in their main bases to debrief and retrain for the following summer. The South Africans were making new plans with a strategic purpose to attack Swapo and destroy its image as a war-winning movement. That, of course, was supposed to show Southwest Africans they shouldn't depend on Swapo when the country became an independent Namibia. The SA Air Force continued operations throughout this period, strafing and bombing enemy positions inside Angola and in Ovambaland. As a countermeasure in summer, as Swapo moved quickly through Angola towards the border, the SA Air Force launched a program of low-level armed reconnaissance flights by Impala fighter jets in the shallow area just north of the cutline. Angolan army vehicles learnt very quickly to avoid travelling during the day and switched to transporting war material at night. This meant the SA Air Force needed to innovate. The SAAF at that stage was almost impotent at night, at least according to its commander Brigadier General Dick Lord. On the 1st of February 1980, the last straw was a report by Lieutenant Franz Vermark, who saw a mass gathering of Swapo insurgents just north of the cutline, southeast of Anjiva. They had lit huge fires and looked like there was a feast going on prior to their mission into Southwest Africa. Although highly trained, the Impala pilots avoided night fighting and the practice had been banned, remember, since 1976 after a series of accidents. But so angry were the South Africans about this big Swapo bry that they sent an urgent request to be allowed to launch a night strike on the target immediately. SADF HQ passed on the request to the Cabinet for permission and it was granted. So at 2300 hours 45 on the 1st of February, Lieutenant Pete Hollis and Captain Kubus Turin took off from Ndangwa to attack under a bright full moon. But of course by then the party was over and the fires were out so the two fired their weapons at where they thought Swapo was and headed home. They purposefully avoided looking back at the explosions. This was believed to have caused the 1976 accident where the pilots lost their night vision in the brilliance of bomb explosions. Night vision and night vision equipment are two very different things. And early in 1980, the SAAF boffins, including Force Preparation Director Brigadier Bossi Heiser, SSO Attack Colonel Fred Dutoy, SSO Morages Colonel Willem Hechter, and SO Impala's Major Stein Fenter decided to try out night fighting training once more. Eight squadron based at Bloomsprate were given the task of carrying this out because they were close to De Brugge weapons training range, west of Blum. Pilots with a minimum of 1,000 hours in the Impala were signed on and ex-Buccaneer squadron commander Simon van Garderen was drafted in as an advisor. The Buccaneers had developed an excellent night attack capability, now it was the fighter's turn. Atlas Aircraft Corporation fitted five Impalas with a simple yet quite ingenious attitude indicator called the Manskein Aircraft, Moonlight. The attitude indicator had to be isolated from the rest of cockpit illumination 
allowing all the others to be dimmed because it was vital as the main instrument required by the pilot to recover from an unusual position or extreme altitude. All other instrument lights were dimmed to allow the pilot to see the ground at night. Then he could glance at the attitude indicator as the primary reference without blinding himself with a full panel of bright lights. They also fitted an audio bomb release device. The pilot could dial in the release altitude for the weapons carried. As he entered the dive attack, a low warning in his earphone started at 800 above ground level, then changed to a higher pitch at 500 AGL and then cut out completely at the release altitude. This helped pilots concentrate on the target without staring at the altimeter. They began to fly nights in pairs, and all white lights in the briefing room were now converted to red. It takes about an hour to fully adapt your vision to the gloom of the night. Mind-scan ops took place between five days before full moon to five days after. Cloud cover couldn't exceed three-eighths, and sorties flown after the full moon could only take place after midnight because the moon rises an hour earlier each night. Translucence or the brightness of the moon is greatest before full moon than after. By the 22nd of February, this new group were flying night sorties over De Brugge, an extremely quick turnaround. These days, this sort of change would probably take more than a year, but they say in war everyone thinks quicker. By the 28th of February, SAAF was briefed about progress, which was good. The next moon was two days away, so the pilots were told to fly to Ondangwa and try out their new skills. That was breathtakingly swift by any standards. Swapo's Bry was on the 2nd of February. The SAAF trained some of its pilots to fly night missions by 27th February. Good grief. Still, the Free State weather played its part and the Impalas couldn't fly to Ndongwa, so they headed to AFB Langabine in the Cape first, carrying out night practice sorties on the Tooth Rock Range. Then they were configured with four rocket pods and external drop tanks and headed to Vintuk via Ketman's Whoop to refuel. Finally, they arrived in Ondangwa, and after a day of familiarization flying, headed out over southern Angola on the 3rd of March. They used the famous call sign, Skunk. It was a curious choice of call sign because in American and NATO codes, Skunk is a radar or visual maritime surface contact whose identity is unknown. Their night patrols were determined by the Angolan deployment of 23mm, 37mm and 57mm anti-aircraft batteries. The South Africans would cruise at a slowish 200 knots indicated airspeed, then activate their weapons as they crossed the cut line. If they spotted vehicles, they'd adjust position to a roll-in point, pull the throttle to idle, silence the undercarriage warning alarm, and then roll into a dive. The speed would build up silently to 300 knots, then the dive brake would be extended, while the pilot kept tracking the target through the gun sight, listening for the audio cues from the bomb-release altimeter, then fire and climb. The big trick was to attack the vehicle from behind if they could by keeping an eye on its headlights. Missiles gone, the pilot fixated on the attitude indicator, pulled the nose through the horizon, selected dive brake in and full throttle, then climbed away from the small arms fire, circled at cruising altitude looking out for SAM missiles, and if any were spotted, he had dived to low level and then zoomed back to Ondangwa, of course looking at his fuel. During the rest of May, good results were achieved, but then Swapo switched their lights off. Even though they used parking lights, the Impalas still managed to spot the odd track even from a distance. By the time of Operation Skeptic, the SA Air Force had begun to use less experienced pilots. The system was working so well. So on the 30th of May, it was finally time to set Operation Skeptic in motion. The aim was for Sector 1-0 in southwest Africa to destroy Swapo's command control and logistics structures by capturing what was called the QFL complex at Chufufa, 
as well as bases at Mulola and Chitombo. That was supposed to take place on the first day of the invasion. After this, the force would remain inside Angola for 10 days to conduct follow-up operations. This would entail an overland attack 180 kilometers inside Angola. Of course, the SADF would be traveling more like 260 kilometers because they would be maneuvering inside the country. No MPLA or FAPLA targets were to be included in what would be the biggest mechanized infantry assault by South African forces since World War II. Battle Group 6-1 would be led by 61 Mech, along with one parachute battalion, one mechanized company from one SA infantry, and two sections of engineers from 25 Field Squadron, all under the command of Commandant Dippy Stipanar. They would attack the QFL complex directly, and then a second swapper base at Yonde. QFL complex was codenamed Smokeshell, and when you hear what happened, it's why veterans talk of being an Operation Smokeshell rather than Skeptic. Battle Group 1-0 comprised of two companies of one parachute battalion, one Irland 90 armoured car squadron from 61 Mech, one section of engineers from 25 Field Squadron and one 81mm mortar group from Army HQ. Commandant Chris Serfentain was to lead Battle Group 1-0 and their target was Molola, south of Smokeshell. Battle Group 5-3 was comprised of three two battalions Bravo Company, two armoured car troops, one 81mm mortar group from Army Headquarters and two sections of engineers, also from 25 Squadron, commanded by Yori Yodan. Chitumbo was their target, and also that was south of Smokeshell. Then 5-4 Battalion was also unleashed, and were the point men of this operation. 3-2 Battalions Delta and Echo Companies, joined by one company of Parabats from one Parachute Battalion, one 81mm mortar platoon from 3-2, and two sections of engineers from 25 Squadron, all headed up by Commandant Anton van Gran. They would start the ball rolling north of Beacon 24 to Malemba, then turn towards Akatali Kongwe to secure the main area of attack for the other three battle groups. If you have a map of Angola available, take a direct line north from Ianhana inside Namibia and imagine the attack taking place up this line all the way to Chufufa or the presumed major Swampo logistics area. Kasinga, by the way, was further northwest of this position. First in, therefore, was 5-4 Battalion with 3-2's Delta and Echo companies doing the grunt work of sweeping the area around Mulemba. They would then set up a temporary base where troops would sleep overnight on the 9th and 10th of June, then the main attack on Smokeshell would follow on the 10th. But intelligence was deficient. Even Southwest Africa Command Lieutenant General Yanni Heldenhuis was not happy, while 61 Mechanized Battalion Commander Dippenau called the information gathered rather vague. Once again, the troops on the ground were going to pay for this deficient intelligence. The SADF believed that Smokeshell was a large base, but it turned out to be a complex of 13 completely different positions spread over an area of 3 by 15 kilometers, or 45 square kilometers, all inside dense bush. And they were going to defeat this in one day? Perhaps not. Each position was a strong point and covered between 300 and 600 meters. Swapo had also dug in. No more living in buildings, these men were in foxholes, trenches and covered bunkers. Every single one was camouflaged and would be difficult to spot both from the air and the ground. The complex was also well defended with at least seven anti-aircraft positions, some with a feared 23mm gun and manned by around 800 swapper soldiers. A big difference from Kasinga was that there were no civilians about, no children nor women who were not combatants. After 5-4 Battalion kicked off the attack by securing Mulemba District just over 40 kilometers north of the cutline, Combat Group 6-1 led the way across the border towards Chufufa with Combat Group 1-0 in its wake. 
For a week before the attack, Fire 4 battalions swept the area around Mulema, destroying a large cache of equipment at China and Nanjiri. There were some heavy firefights, including one on June 4th, when Delta Company's Corporal M. Van Vake was killed and Rifleman Jose Joao was wounded in the stomach. At least, they believed he was wounded because Private Joao disappeared. Delta searched for him through the night and all the way to 2 o'clock the next day on the 5th of June. It was thought that Plan had snatched him during the skirmish, so the decision was taken to continue the assault, and he was listed MIA. On June the 6th, Delta Company found another large ammunition cache 15 kilometers south of Malemba, including mortars and RPG-7 rockets. The South Africans were relying on their air cover, and on the 7th of June, the SA Air Force duly obliged. 16 mirages hammered Tobias Hanyeko Training Center, or THTC as it was known, it was a bit of a sideshow as that was far away to the northwest, but made a point. This was Swapo's main training base near Lubango, way to the northwest of the attack zone. If you remember, Lubango was one of the towns in the highlands of Angola that the South Africans used on their way to the capital, Luanda. It was a symbolic and strategic target. After hitting the training camp, 12 of the Mirages and four Buccaneers bombed the QFL, or smoke shell, on their return home. But two mirages were damaged in that attack for the loss of two swapper killed and one wounded. By June 9th, Fire 4 Battalion had secured the route from Beacon 25 via the Jofima Mulemba route to Akatali Kongwe, which was the staging area for 61's crossing. The other battle groups left Ian Haina for Mulemba at 0200 hours on the 10th of June, with Combat Group 61 supposed to be in place by noon across the border. After an aerial bombardment by the SA Air Force and then an artillery bombardment by 61's guns, the South Africans were then moving from the south, the east, and hit Smokeshell. It was expected that the enemy would probably wilt in the face of such power and flee westwards. That wasn't exactly what happened. Two parachute companies from Combat Group 61 were also supposed to be choppered into the west of the Smokeshell complex to operate as stopper groups. Then the attack would focus on the Yonder complex, with four positions believed to house around 700 Swapo guerrillas. While all of this was supposed to be going on, in the South Combat Group 1-0, which had followed 61 into Angola, would remain around Malola. There was to be another moment of eye-rolling. As usual, General Constant Fulhun insisted on being part of the operation, despite the obvious strategic danger, so he joined Commandant Dipinar in his command rattle. As with other major operations before and after, the SADF threw up many smoke screens to keep plan away from learning about Ops Skeptic. For almost two weeks before the invasion, the units involved were going to take part in highly visible exercises and counterinsurgency operations around Ovambaland. Stepping back for a moment, we have to ask a few salient questions. If the SADF knew that plan was strongest on the ground in summer, then surely plan knew that the SADF was strongest on the ground in winter or late autumn. So Swapo was planning for an invasion they believed was likely. Secondly, the SA Air Force was flexing its air muscles and the attack on Lubango was excellent elixir for pilots' bar stories, but actually tipped off the Angolans and Swapo that a major attack must be imminent. By focusing on Swapo's most important training center with mirages, a superb sight if you're into aviation, they also alerted everyone that something big was afoot. Bombing the Tobias Anyeko training center and then Smokeshell itself straight afterwards was not the cleverest trick and the SAF was a strategic handbook. That didn't exactly keep Swapo in the dark about smoke shells or QFL, as it's known, important. Yes, it's easy enough to sit here with 20-20 vision in hindsight, but if you were sitting in a foxhole in smoke shell and 12 mirages blew in out of the blue sky one day, how would you react? You'd be expecting ground forces shortly. 
The SA Air Force had tried to obfuscate the significance by flying the mirages in stages from Vitekliff Air Base to Uppington to confuse Swampo and Russian intelligence. Then all of that smoke and mirrors was for nothing when they bombed smoke shell hours before the actual ground attack. The other reality check here is that Swampo's positions were so well dug in that the air raid had virtually no effect whatsoever. The main force, led by 6-1 Mechanized Battalion, began moving from their bases early on the 8th of June. The convoy was an impressive sight, 144 kilometers long at times. As the first vehicles arrived in Yenhana for a fuel refill, the last were just about to leave Omutia. That distance is a two-hour drive by car, whether you take the B1 route or the D3630 and 3631. Mechanized warfare is the trickiest to coordinate, to plan, to get right. It features heavy vehicles, aircraft, artillery, troops, logistics, fuel, food, medical supplies, and things began to go wrong early. The bush was dense and the roads were comprised of thick, dusty sand. The Irland armoured cars, the Noddy cars, led the way, followed by Rattles in the G2 Magruz Deutz gun tractors. By the time the final heavy vehicles hit the sandy trails, these had been ploughed up like the Russian steppe in winter. The Magruz Deutz engines overheated, guns broke loose as metal fatigue caused failures, and delays tested tempers. But, and eventually, the battle group rolled into Malimba in southern Angola on the evening of 9th of June, joining Van Khran's combat group 5-4. There were still 130 kilometers to go to Smokeshell, and the force moved out before dawn on the 10th, led by combat group 61 and a huge convoy of just over 150 vehicles. There were a few hitches that most troops were oblivious about. For example, at Malimba, the choppers were supposed to pick up the paratroop stopper groups to drop west of Smokeshell, but there was no fuel for the Pumas, an extraordinary oversight, so Dipinar was forced to continue without his important stoppers in place. By 1315 that day, the massive invasion force was ready east of Smokeshell, although the first exploratory assaults had already started at 12. The air force was also overhead and their second raid on Smokeshell was full strength, meant to stun the defenders. But they'd been bombing since 0800, long before the ground forces arrived. These second bombing runs had very little effect on Swapo, and as Dipinar gave the order for the full assault at 1315 with a call of Lat Vai, let it rip, the artillery was supposed to open up. Instead, there was silence. But not for long, Major Tobias Vermark hurriedly moved the battery into position and began the bombardment late. But the Swapo base was so atomized, as I explained, that the artillery had very little effect as well. Swapo guerrillas had already moved away from their northern foxholes and taken up alternative defensive positions closer to the centre of this complex and the south. Moreover, their well-built bunkers needed a direct hit to be destroyed. That was like threading a needle in the dense bush, or to use a pool term, calling all pockets. Artillery spotters found it very difficult to identify the targets. Dipinar had decided to break up his force into six combined combat teams with mechanised and motorised infantry and 90mm gun artillery support. Team 1 and 2 had a company each supported by Rattle 90s and mortars. Team 3 saw Irland 90s supported by an infantry platoon. Team 4 and 5 were parabat companies with three stopper groups. And Team 6 was the reserve. As you're going to hear next episode, the assault would go like clockwork for Teams 1 and 3, aiming at the now largely empty Swapo northern positions. But Team 2, Captain Louis Harms's B Company, was going to run straight into heavy anti-aircraft guns in the southern section. It was not going to be pretty. With that, it's time to secure the perimeter. Just a quick thank you to Richard and Robert, who have both donated towards this podcast. Thanks. 
that helps pay the podcast and website hosting fees. If you want to chat, you can send me an email to desmondlatham at gmail.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. You can also contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.